Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. I don't know the first thing about investing my money, and it is all so overwhelming, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I love that Acorns makes it so easy and how you don't need a lot of money to get started. So head to acorns.com creepers or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com creepers. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC, Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. All right, Mogab. Tonight, I'm going to tell you about the murder of Angela Samoda. That's the second Angie. Second Angie in a row. Yes. Last week, we had Angela Diaz. This week... Angela Samoda, very different people. I was a little out on last week's Angie. Yeah, she's not great. <laughs> yeah, not a fan. Though, she's who you'd want to have around anytime you wanted like a real petty revenge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, hey. Like something really bad happens, who are you going to call? Angela Diaz. another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. All right, you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Isn't that jock jams? Remember jock jams? Pump that jam, pump it up while your feet are pumping. Wait, are those really the words? Yeah. I think. That's what I always sing. (laughs) Is that not the words? No, I don't know. I can't wait for someone to... While your feet are pumping. (laughs) I can't wait for some high school mascot to slide in your DMs and correct you. All right. Can't wait. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. 
Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. So for this episode, I want to majorly shout out the podcast Criminal, episode 88, Cold Case, big source for this, as well as several other articles that we will link, one from the Dallas Morning News, another Washington Post, and then you know, a bunch of court documents. All right. On to the show. Cold case, great. That means this is unsolved. I hate you. No, it's not. All right, Mogab. This week I'm taking you to the 80s. Oh, yeah. The night of October 12th, 1984, Ben McCall got a really weird phone call from his girlfriend, Angela Samoda. It was late, around 1.45 in the morning, and she told him there was a strange man in her apartment asking to use the phone and the bathroom. Ooh. She asked him to just talk to her, and it seemed like she wanted him to keep talking to her and stay on the phone because then she'd be safe if she was on the phone with him. Right. She asked Ben if he knew if there was a payphone anywhere near her apartment, and then she said she'd call him right back and just hung up the phone. One forty-five. One forty-five in the morning. Ooh. But she didn't call him back, so he tried to call her back, but she wouldn't answer the phone. He tried calling a few more times. He got more and more worried with every phone call before he finally decided to just drive over to her place, which was about a 10-minute drive away. He got there around 2 in the morning. He knocked on the door, but she didn't come. He tried opening the door, but it was locked from the inside. He banged and banged on the door, but she never answered. Oh, I'm freaking out. He tried the back door, but it was locked too. And he saw her car in the parking lot, and he knew she was there, and his worry increased. Break a window, bucko. What is this? Your first rodeo? (sighs) I know. Luckily, Ben had a job as a construction supervisor, which came with sweet, sweet, sweet perks, like a gigantic mobile phone installed in his truck that they said was about the size of the dashboard. And I looked it up because I didn't actually know that was a thing in the 80s. And this phone cost like $4,000 in 1984 money, which is like $10,000 today. So... Ben got out this very expensive piece of technology and called the police at 2.17 a.m. Probably cost $4,000 a minute, too. Probably so. You're probably right. Prepaid. No prepaids. So Officer Janice Crowther and her partner were sent out. And Janice was only 20 years old when she sent out to this call. Oh, my gosh. And her and her partner met Ben in front of the apartment around 2.40 a.m., and Angela's apartment seemed eerily quiet. 
Her car was parked outside, but it was dark and there was no movement inside. And a chill just went down Officer Janice's spine. She was a rookie officer, but she knew something was wrong. She could feel it. I have something stupid to say. Okay. I didn't know that you could be an officer and be under 21. It just feels weird to me. Like, you can't drink alcohol, but you're – I mean, I get it. Same thing with soldiers. I know. (laughs) But, like, I didn't even think about – like, you could be 20 – I figured you'd at least be 21 by the time you got through the police academy. I guess not. It's only, like, six months, the police academy. I mean, it's not, like, a four-year degree. Yeah. Ooh, okay. She said she was shaking in her boots. She went to the apartment manager to get the keys to Angela's apartment, and she and her partner unlocked the door and let themselves in. Officer Janice headed to the kitchen while her partner headed to Angela's bedroom. There wasn't much to see in the kitchen, just her shoes that had remained on the floor, but she heard her partner call out, I found her. Ooh, that's not good. No. What he found was Angela, covered in blood, her eyes wide open, and her body stretched naked across her bed, both legs hanging over the side. Her heart had basically been cut out and was lying oh my God. on top of her Why chest. didn't you warn me about this one? <laughs> Sorry. Why? You act like this was casual, like no way to golf club, Noah's Russell home. She had a what? giant stuffed rabbit lying next to her. <gasps> I know. Like my bunny? Yeah. The investigation would discover that Angela had been raped and then stabbed 18 times in the chest and breast area, and that her face had been covered by a hand while she was stabbed. That's all, though. That's it. I think I'm going to throw up. That's the extent of that. I don't know why. This one got me Mm -hmm. all of a sudden. It doesn't get worse. It doesn't get worse. So... Police got to work investigating, and they started by digging into Angela and the events of October 12th. In 1984, Angela Samoda was just out there living her best life. She was 20 years old. She was attending Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. This is in Dallas, by the way, where she was a member of the Zeta Tau Alpha sorority, and she served as social chair for them. Oh. So my mom always joked about how... The Zeta girls were just like the hottest girls at her school. And she would just look at me and say, Kristen, I could have been a Zeta. <laughs> what? And you know it's true. You know it's true. You know. Oh, you yeah. You know. <laughs> Absolutely. And Angela was definitely a Zeta. She was gorgeous. She had these brilliant blue eyes. She was intelligent. She had a bubbly personality. She was often the center of attention, and sometimes that wasn't so great. Like, sometimes she would get random love notes from strangers, which is a little creepy. Is this when she was in college? I guess I didn't catch her age. How yeah, old she's is- 20. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So she's, like, in, in college. Right? In college, yeah. She was studying computer science and electrical engineering during a time when very few women were in those programs. So she was one of the few, but everyone really liked her. Her sophomore year, she started dating Ben, who was a few years older than her. So she decided not to live in the Zeta house that year because she wanted to be able to see him whenever she wanted. And we all know how boys are not allowed in the sorority houses. That's right. So she got an apartment off campus. On the night of October 12th, 1984, Angela made plans with her friends, Russell Buchanan and Anna Kadala. And Anna was called Anita in one article. And in the court documents, she was called Anna. So I don't know if Anna is like a nickname for Anita, but Hmm. we'll go with Anna. Because that was in the court documents. 
She made plans with them to go to the State Fair of Texas that was in town and then go bar hopping afterwards. And she'd wanted her boyfriend Ben to come, but he had a really early morning with his job in construction, so he decided to stay home. This was during the Red River showdown between the University of Texas and the University uh, of Oklahoma, the rivalry man, to end all rivalries. I have so many good memories of that. Really? Some know it as the Red River Shootout. It was then changed to the showdown. At this time, it would have been the shootout. Mm. But obviously, that name has been changed since. Yeah. Yes. Man, I lived for this game growing up. <laughs> Me and my Uncle Kenny. Really? Oh. Mm-hmm. It was one of the only times I was allowed growing up to eat in the living room so that we could, like, watch it together. Because at my aunt's house, I always, you know, uh-huh. eat in the kitchen. I was able to eat in the living room in front of the TV. Ooh. Big things happening for your girl. Ooh. So for those who don't know, each year, the big game takes place at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas during the state fair, which meant 75,000 fans descending on the city. So it was a pretty busy weekend, to say the least. It was chaotic and crowded and fun, but there was a heavy police presence and they were kept busy that weekend. Angela and Anna had been hanging out that day. They'd gone to lunch with a professor of theirs and then took a nap at Angela's place. They'd be all rested before going out that night. Is that what people are doing in the 80s, going to lunch with their professors? I don't know. I thought it was strange, too. Yeah. It's not what I was doing on a game day. No. So Angela called Russell to see if he wanted to join them out. He was a new friend of hers, and he agreed. He lived pretty close by, so he walked over to her place And he saw that they were both really dressed up, and he wasn't, so he wanted to change. So the group walked back to his place so he could change, and then they went to dinner at Bennigan's. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I hope that they were in their game day dresses, which I soon learned when I moved is not a universal trend. (laughs) They were not in game day dresses. Actually, I know what Angela was wearing. She was wearing – I think I go into it later, but she was wearing like a black backless jumpsuit. That just sounds so fabulous. Yeah, in the 80s, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, hey. Mm -hmm. With boots, I hope. No, with heels. She was wearing heels. (laughs) Okay. And then Anna and Russell's accounts vary slightly after this. Anna said after Bennigan's, they went to a nightclub called Studebaker's. And Russell says they went to Lakewood's Boardwalk Beach Club, which is like a casual bar with a floor covered in sand and a volleyball net inside. (laughs) <laughs> Not to be confused with Sherlock's or Cabo. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Which sounds like the two places they're talking about. Yes. Both of them agreed that they ended the night at Nostromo Restaurant, which I'm probably saying wrong, where Angela was able to get them into the exclusive club upstairs called the Rio Room. Ooh. Angela used to go there all the time, and she knew the bouncer there, so he'd always let her and her friends in. Angela was the type that just knew everyone, and Russell said that night she was floating around, going table to table, talking to people. It was super crowded that night, so they weren't drinking very much, and Angela's blood alcohol level later would show to be around .09, so just above the legal limit. She wasn't, like, wasted or anything, in case anybody mm-hmm. wants to, you know, blame her for her own rape and murder, as as does happen, you know. Never. Around midnight, the group decided to head home. Angela wanted to get up early to drive to Waco the next day for a football game. So she drove Russell home and then dropped Anna off at her dorm before swinging by her boyfriend Ben's apartment at around 1.30 to surprise him and just to say goodnight. And he said that she was in a really playful mood. She was like teasing him and saying that she'd just stopped by to bug him on her way home. 
Where was he? He didn't. He couldn't go out because he had an early work morning the next morning. So he didn't go out with them. Yeah. But they spoke really briefly in his doorway before he went back to bed and she headed home. And that was the last time she was seen alive. About 15 minutes later, she'd be calling him, making that weird phone call. Just, yeah, I'm so confused by that. Get me there. So the police had four suspects early on in the investigation. Angela's boyfriend, Ben, obviously, who had admitted to being the last person to see her alive. Her friend, Russell, Mm -hmm. that had been out with her that night. A guy named Joseph Barlow, who was just a guy that had a crush on her and would sometimes leave her little love notes on her car. And Lance Johnson, who was an ex-boyfriend from Angela's freshman year, who lived in Abilene, but he'd once cut up her clothes and threatened her with a knife. So... Oh, the night. Yeah. The night Ben called police, he gave police permission to search his truck and apartment. He gave hair and DNA samples. And he was ruled out pretty early on because his blood type didn't match the physical evidence. And the police just Mm. moved on. They they were able to collect blood, semen and fingernail scrapings from the apartment. So they did have. Okay. okay. You said it didn't get any worse. DNA. It gets maybe. It doesn't get worse. I mean. Okay. The ex-boyfriend Lance was living in Amarillo at the time of the murder, and police were able to confirm that he was there, and his blood type also didn't match, so he, too, was ruled out as a suspect. That's real far. Joseph Barlow with the love notes also had an alibi that checked out, so he was ruled out as a suspect. The boyfriend is always a suspect, and the ex-boyfriend seemed a little unhinged, but Russell didn't- You hear that? (laughs) You're always a suspect. (laughs) Yep. But Russell didn't even know Angela all that well. They'd met at a happy hour with mutual friends like that month and exchanged information. They'd been trying to plan a lunch together, but I mean, you know how those things go. The lunch never happened. Mm -hmm. But Angela did call him that Friday night to see if he wanted to go out with her and her friend. He hadn't hung out with her before that and had no idea that she'd been murdered just two hours after he last saw her until police showed up at his apartment a few days later and told him. Yeah. That's why I'm not trying to hang out with new people, make new friends. You know? Like, <laughs> sorry. you might be accused you might, of their murder. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. You might get got and then I'm going to have to explain why I hung out with you. <laughs> Like, I'm keeping my circle high and tight. <laughs> for, now, you know? for a true crime newbie, you are just as paranoid as the rest of us. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> and then you're like, hey, I've got this great idea. Hang out with me once a week. <laughs> Let me tell you these terrible stories. The only reason why I do hang out with you once a week is because this is an alibi every Monday. That's true. You know exactly where <laughs> you are. We got it recorded and everything. Oh, I know. My receipts. The police were already out on Russell by the time they'd come to give him the news because he'd been out of town that weekend, something they thought was very suspicious. They asked to search his apartment and he told them they could, which was a bit unfortunate because his roommate had just come back from an African safari and had brought back like a bunch of junky knives and old spears. So that's what they find searching this guy's apartment. They don't like it. Uh, Yeah, that's weird. Where's his roommate? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. That's a good question. So police brought him down to the station, but they didn't handcuff him or arrest him. When Russell walked out of his apartment, he saw the complex was surrounded by cops crouched behind their car doors with their guns drawn. I mean, could you imagine that? (laughs) No, I pissed my pants. Oh, my God. Completely. 
Russell got into the backseat of the squad car and they rode down to the station. And I thought this story was really weird. He said the cop driving took an exit and paused briefly, asking Russell if the spot they were in looked familiar. And remember, we're in Dallas. So when Russell didn't respond, the cop told him that's where Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Like the uh, FBI agent that shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, I know what it is. Secret I'm service. just trying to figure out why he's on a historical tour right. on his way to the right. station. Like, why would you – is it like, we're going to get you? Like, Jack Ruby got yeah. Lee Harvey Oswald, we're going to get you? Which, know. you know, some people might claim got the wrong man and now you're getting right. the wrong man again. <laughs> now is it like – and to your right, there's a 7-Eleven. I mean, it's just like <laughs> – <laughs> The whole interaction just seemed really ominous and weird to Russell. Yeah. But police were suspicious of him for several reasons. First, the autopsy revealed that whoever had killed her was what was called a non-secretor, which meant that he didn't have blood in his secretions, like his saliva or semen. But this isn't... Are you supposed to have blood in your saliva and semen? Well, some people do. And it's, I feel like I'd go get that checked. Yeah, it's not super rare. Twenty percent of this of the population are non-secretors. It's a minority, so eighty percent, yes, have blood in their secretions. No, that doesn't seem right. I googled it in my in my professional medical opinion. <laughs> As a general rule, in the U.S., about twenty percent of the population are non-secretors, with the remaining eighty percent being secretors, <laughs> which means a secretor puts their blood type. Into these bodily fluids. Their blood oh. type. My non-expert opinion. What that definition tells me it means is that you could use saliva to test for blood type on secretors. Uh, I want to know which one I am. You're a, a secretor. How do you know? I'm 80% sure I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, I can't wait to prove you wrong. I'm going to go spit in a thing tomorrow. Take it to the lab. All right. All right. Do it. We're We're all here for it. I'm going to post my secretion results. Oh, God. (laughs) Nobody wants to see your secretion results. (laughs) That's a private matter between you and your doctor. Again, 20% of the population are non-secretors. It's a minority, sure, but it's not like it's a one in a million, you know, and Russell was a non-secretor, so they were (laughs) suspicious. Second, he had no alibi for the time of the murder. The girls had dropped him off at his apartment, but he only lived a few blocks away from Angela's, and he could have easily walked back there. Mm -hmm. And third, the day after the murder, he left town, flying to Houston to see family, but he was back in Dallas Sunday night. Okay, flying from Dallas to Houston, weird flex, but okay. I fly from Houston to Dallas all the time. It's a 45-minute flight. You go up, you go down. I know. I've done it, too. But I feel like in the 80s, it's not like you hopping on your Southwest flight for 50 bucks, you know? Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, if a phone is $4,000, I don't even know. Anyways. Right. Exactly. So Russell took a polygraph test really early on, and he passed it. But that did not get police off his trail once again. Of course not. For six months after Angela's murder, detectives would just pick Russell up regularly for questioning. They'd show up at his office or wait for him outside when he got home late. Do you think they were like, hey, man, got a light load today. What do you want to do? Hey, let's go get Russell. All right. Let's go bug Russell. Yeah, absolutely. 
Detectives started showing true tunnel vision where he was concerned. They even re-examined that polygraph test and decided he didn't pass it. The results were now inconclusive. Mm, I hate when that happens. I hate – oh, my God. I just got a text from a person I know who is doing – No. Who is doing a job that requires a polygraph test. I can't say more than that. And uh, she's getting her polygraph test done. And I was like, you got to walk me through the steps. I want to know everything about this. What do they say? Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. So then detectives just flat out accuse him. They said that Russell was mad that Angela had dropped him off, that he'd wanted to hook up with her. So he walked to her apartment and she let him in. He had sex with her and then stabbed her over and over and over. That was their theory. But I mean, when they check with Ben, I feel like if that was the case, she would have said, hey, this guy, Russell so-and-so. Yes. She would have said, Russell's in my apartment and he's acting really weird. Like, it was clearly a stranger. Or she would have told Ben who it was. Hey, yeah. Russell's over here and he's making me really uncomfortable. I feel bad saying Russell. <laughs> I know you should. <laughs> but you know what? Don't because guess what? He doesn't know that tonight he's been making me so mad by leaving the hangers. He gets dressed in the morning and like takes his clothes and pants off the coat hanger, hangs it on the doorknob. I'll walk by and get snagged and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing this new thing where I take all the hangers and put them in the bed sheets on his side of the bed. So when he's exhausted at night, he gets in the bed, and now there's all these hangers in there tonight, and he doesn't know. So I can't wait. He can't see them? Well, I mean, like, he just, like, kind of gets in, and, like, it's just, like, such a kick, you know, in the nuts. He's like, oh, like, ugh. So that's what you get. Hang, put your hangers up. So. <laughs> that's amazing. That's almost like your mom hiding those clothes under your bed. <laughs> I forgot about that. She asked the other day if she could come visit. And I said, I don't know. Do you plan on taking all of your items with you? For all the peeps and creeps out there, my mom came and visited. Linda from Laporte, Louise, you know her, you love her. She, her bag, she came for three days and her bag was over 50 pounds. I have no idea why. On the way back to lighten the load, she just, we're leaving for the airport. And I'm like, man, your, your suitcase is lighter. And she's like, yeah, don't look under your bed. Okay, so then I immediately went and looked under the bed and she just, Took a bunch of her clothes on, stuffed them under the mattress. No, wasn't it where she had brought all this clothes and then asked if you wanted them and you said, no, I do not want them. Take them home. And then she left them under your bed. (laughs) Yes. But I didn't know until I was like carrying her suitcase and I was like, what did you do? I've never once worn an article of my mother's clothing. We're not even the same size. No. It's just. Well. Russell was 23 years old, and up to this point, he'd been trying to cooperate with the police, so he hadn't gotten an attorney. And I'd just like to say that you can cooperate with the police and also have an attorney. People don't like the guilt. Like, people think it makes them look guilty. Right. Your attorney will just make sure that you don't say anything that could be used against you later on. But after the police just flat out accused him of the murder, he asked to call an attorney. He did, and the attorney was like, uh, put the detective on the phone. So the detective gets on the phone, and his lawyer was like, either charge my client or take him home right now. Ooh. Yeah, but then after his- we have- Hmm? I was just going to say, if there's any peeps and creeps out there that are lawyers and would like to just be on retainer- I was going to say, first of all, can we just keep you on retainer, please? And also, I have uh, a lot of questions, and also- Yeah, I mean, can we just- if you're- not if you're a law student. If you're already, I will take a law student. Law. I will take a yeah, law that's student. Fine. If you pass <laughs> the bar, 
that's great, but I will take a law student. Not like pre-law, though. Okay, don't come in and say you're pre-law. All right, you're still in your undergrad. I need at least two semesters of law school behind you. And then, honestly, I just just need somebody to call for legal advice from time to time. That's all. (laughs) Yeah, if you could just slide in our DMs with your credentials, that'd be great. Thank you. So after his lawyer got involved, police's interest in him increased. They didn't talk to him anymore, but he was under 24-hour surveillance. He was about to go to grad school in London, and this got the police super anxious. They're like, he's trying to flee the country. And I'm like, he's trying to go to a really nice grad school. That he already had it gotten accepted to and had plans for before. Right. I'm, sure. I'm assuming. Like it's, been, it's been yeah. six months, so I don't know. He is an architect, and so – like he was, you know, going to a really that, prestigious that school. That makes sense. Yeah. So Angela had this friend, Sheila Waisaki. Sheila is the friend that was interviewed on Criminal, on the podcast Criminal. So if you haven't listened to that episode, episode 88, it's so good. They actually have a two-parter on her. They'd been roommates freshman year, and they might have seemed like an unlikely pair. They kind of came from different backgrounds. Angela was very social and outgoing. Sheila was more cautious and standoffish. She didn't drink or go to parties, but she loved Angela. And by the end of their freshman year, they were doing everything together. They'd drive around in Angela's cute little Toyota Supra. And by cute, I mean like by 80 standards. It was like super cute, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. They'd go to bars. I'm just picturing us. Like, I feel like this totally. is us. We are an unlikely pair. Totally. Exactly. They'd go to bars like the Rio Room. And Sheila said it was just so much fun being Angela's friend because she was so outgoing. She was always meeting new people, always doing fun things. See, that's how I feel about you. Oh, that's how I feel about you. No. Mm-mm. I'm a I'm crap. You just make me laugh. <laughs> you just always make me laugh. Yeah. I'm fine on an individual basis. Don't get me in a bar in a crowd. Oof. I don't know. I don't know. You can hold your own. You can hold your own. But the weekend that Angela was murdered, Sheila had gone home to visit her family for the weekend. And she got a call at her parents' house from one of Angela's sorority sisters, Barbara, who told her that Angela had been in an accident. And so Sheila's first thought was that she'd been in a car accident. So she asked her, you know, what hospital is she in? And Barbara just kept crying, which told Sheila that Angela was not at the hospital. And Sheila is not a Zeta Talfa, correct? No, yeah. No, okay. they were just uh, roommates. roommates, yeah. But Sheila was friends with a lot of the Zetas. Like, she was kind of in that group, but she wasn't a Zeta. And she knew that Angela was dead. Sheila said she immediately felt sick, and her hands started to shake, and she just started to scream. And her mother ran into the room, but Sheila couldn't explain. She just sobbed. And she said that was the day her entire world changed. Mm. Detectives reached out to Sheila early on to ask her about the men in Angela's life. She met them at the police station, and she said it felt weird being there. It felt dirty there. And she said she saw a crime scene photo of Angela's body just laying on someone's desk. (gasps) And she said it was there that she realized that Angela is just some girl in a picture to them. She wanted to cooperate. She wanted to bring Angela's killer to justice, and she became a trusted source of information for the detectives. In the early days, Sheila was absolutely convinced that it had been Angela's ex-boyfriend that had killed her. She'd been friends with Angela during that time when he threatened Angela with the knife and cut her clothes up, and she thought he seemed capable of committing this murder. 
But that guy had been in Amarillo when Angela was murdered, and the police were able to confirm that. It wasn't him. The police were absolutely convinced that Russell was guilty. Ugh, why? One of the detectives told Sheila his theory on Russell. He told her that he'd failed his polygraph, which he hadn't. It, he passed yeah. it, and then they decided it was inconclusive, which inconclusive. is still not failing. Which, do we know why they decided that? They just decided the, uh, Yeah. And he even told her that Russell's DNA was a match for the semen found at the crime scene. He didn't mention that 20% of the population was also a match to that. Yeah. And Sheila, you know, she's 20 years old, and she had such a high regard for the police that she never questioned any of it. Well, if you tell me that there's a DNA or a blood match or whatever, I'm going to be like, oh, okay. Absolutely. Like, it never even crossed her mind to question what they were saying. But after Russell lawyered up and they couldn't question him anymore, they asked for her help to get information from him. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Sheila wanted to do whatever it took to find Angela's murderer, and the police had convinced her that it was Russell, so she agreed to wear a wire and set up several phone calls with him to try and get something incriminating out of him. She even set up a dinner with him at a restaurant. And in one of the articles I read, it said that undercover police were sitting at a table nearby at the restaurant, but on the episode of Criminal where Sheila was interviewed, she says they weren't there at all, that they basically just hmm. sent her in with who they all thought was a murderer. Cool. Yeah. Sheila said she was terrified. Like, she legit thought she was having dinner with a murderer. But she thought it was the right thing to do, and she wanted so badly to get justice for Angela. And she figured – I wonder if she's, like, telling her mom all of this. Her mom you know? was so mad at her. She said uh, her mom was so mad at her for going to dinner with him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. But she just figured someone's got to do it. And the police told her what to ask, and so she asked him what they wanted to know, but it didn't work. The police never got anything incriminating on Russell. They were so convinced that he was guilty that once they had zoned in on him, they weren't willing to look everywhere else. And with no evidence to use to charge him, the investigation just fizzled out. 
They told Sheila that Russell had lawyered up, and the lawyer he'd gotten was this real hotshot, well-known lawyer in Dallas named Racehorse Haynes. Like, you cannot make this stuff up. (laughs) Which made Sheila- That's amazing. Yeah, which made Sheila even more suspicious of him because she's like, you don't get Racehorse Haynes unless you're guilty. That really does sound like a racehorse. I know, it does. And then police also told her that Russell fled the country because he'd gone to grad school in London. And they said there was nothing more that could be done unless they got more evidence against him. And so the case went cold for 20 years. 20 years? Good golly, Miss Molly. 20 years. That's a long time. I know. So wait, where are we now? 94? 2004. 2004. Yeah, 2000. That still feels mm-hmm. basically 20 years ago. <laughs> it is 20 years ago, yes. I know. Almost. Oh, God, we're old. During that time, Russell had become this incredibly celebrated architect. He was super well-known around Dallas. His homes and apartment buildings have won really prestigious awards. He's had his work in Architectural Digest. He also had a table he designed as part of the permanent collection in the Dallas Museum of Art. And we know you also graduated high school. We get it. (laughs) What? In 2004. Oh. You just knew that was coming. And I graduated high school in 2004. <laughs> That's not a brag. That's not a big brag for me anymore. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Yikes. But for those 20 years, he had that dark cloud hanging over his head. Like he had to explain to women he dated about how he was a murder suspect. He got married in the early 90s to his wife, Karen, who says she never once doubted that he was innocent. But could you imagine? I mean, 20 years, you're a suspect. They still think you did it. They just don't think they can prove it. But are they like within the 20 years, have they like left him alone? Yeah, I don't think they're really harassing him anymore, but I'm not sure. But like at any moment, you could be called back. Right, exactly. You could get picked up again at any time. Because the case isn't closed. Meanwhile, Sheila moved to Nashville. She got married to an accountant. She became a mom to two boys, but she never forgot about Angela. She was frustrated that there had been no justice for her, and that frustration grew with every passing year. She also hated how successful Russell had become, that he got to have this incredible life and Angela hadn't gotten to live hers because she was still convinced that he did it because the detectives right. you know, told her that he had. And there was also something the detectives had told her that always stayed with her, like it was just living in the back of her mind. They'd told her, the first murder is always the hardest. What's that mean? Well, I think... Like the first one that Russell? Yeah. So I think it means it's easier to kill after you've done it one time. It gets easier every time. And so he could just be out, you know, killing people for this whole 20 years and... Yeah. I love that they said that to her, and then they're like, but please go eat, you know, chicken Alfredo with him. No kidding. Yeah, exactly. By the mid-2000s, she just couldn't take it anymore. Her boys were school-aged at that point, and as a stay-at-home mom, she had more free time on her hands than she'd had before. Plenty Mm -hmm. of time to think about Angela. And she felt like she had to do something, because it didn't seem like anyone else was doing anything. And then one night around July 2006, she says she saw Angela standing by her bed. It was only for a few seconds, but that was all that she needed to be sure that it was time. 
and that she wanted some answers. So she started calling the police in Dallas to try and get Angela's case reopened. It wasn't that the case was closed. It was that it was a cold case. And Dallas didn't even have a cold case division at the time. They were only working current cases. There was not a detective assigned to her case. And Sheila said they seemed very uninterested in talking to her. Yeah, like, how does that phone call go? Like, you call anyone like, hey, you're going to find a file folder in a cabinet. Like, I mean, how do you even bring it back up? Like, hey, uh, can I just talk to someone about? Yeah. I don't know how you get that brought back I don't up. think it's 911. I think she's calling the police station directly and being like, yeah. hey, I want to talk to somebody about this case from 1984. But she was going to keep calling until she'd get someone to at least pull the record and talk to her. She even got some of Angela's other friends and her Zeta sorority sisters to call as well. They made over 750 calls over the course of several years, just begging Mm. and pleading with police to review the case. Don't underestimate the power of sisterhood, am I right? Absolutely. They told her no one had called about this case in 20 years, which is just heartbreaking that someone could be forgotten like that. And Sheila just thought Angela deserved better. So she kept calling and she kept calling, but still nothing happened. So Sheila decided... She was just going to do it herself. Oh, get it, girl. She lived in a gated, guarded neighborhood at the time, which she says is probably because of the trauma of her friend being murdered in college. And she was pretty friendly with the guard at her neighborhood, and she was keeping him up to date with what was happening with Angela's case, which was a whole lot of nothing. It seemed like she would kind of vent to him and complain to him. And one Uh day, he told her that he'd sponsor her if she wanted to become a private investigator, and he thought she'd be great at it. So she did. Sheila got her private investigator's license, which involved being sponsored and working under somebody, as well as taking a test. And Sheila said she treated it like it was a Harvard entrance exam. And she passed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. She was hoping that this would get her access to the evidence in storage. She thought the police would just have to deal with her then. They wouldn't be able to continually blow her off if she was a P.I. I didn't even know you could just, like, apply to be that. It's like becoming an officiant online for a wedding. Like I could just be well, you need a spon- you need a sponsor, and you have to work under somebody. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah, you can do it. I feel like I could find that. <laughs> Sheila <laughs> also knew that DNA had come a long way since 1984, and she thought if the detectives wouldn't request the test, maybe as a PI, she could. She started off her PI journey doing stuff like cheating spouses and those kinds of cases, but the only thing she really cared about was Angela's case. She started working it on her own, creating what her son called a war room at her house with pictures and information Mm. just spread out all over. She went back to look at the rapes in the area at the time, if they were reported, if there was a pattern. She was also back to calling the Dallas PD to tell them that she was now a private investigator. And (laughs) they were not excited to hear that. (laughs) Oh, man, I know these phone calls because I get them sometimes of like just the persistent and you're like, okay, Peggy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. I didn't write this down, but she said that they called her the PETA, the pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. And they would just be like, who wants the PETA today? (laughs) (laughs) But finally, in 2006, Dallas PD reopened the case and they put Detective Linda Crum in charge of the investigation. And Linda took Sheila seriously. 
So she called the Southwest Institute of Forensic Science, and she learned that they still had a vaginal swab that had been preserved this entire time. What? For 22 years. They had this swab preserved. So Linda told Sheila the good news, and Sheila asked if they could run the DNA, which wasn't available back in 1984. Linda said they could. But then then Sheila didn't hear anything else about it for an entire year. But finally, one day, Linda called Sheila, and she said it was a moment she will never forget (sighs) when she heard Linda say the words, we got him. Wait, what? Mm -hmm. Sheila was on the edge of her seat, fully expecting Linda to say it was Russell Buchanan. But this is yet another case of a Russell being falsely accused, and I'm really starting to get Mm. worried about your boyfriend, Mogab. Hey, he's got a he's got a clean slate. Don't you worry about him. All these Russells had clean slates. I know. Stop. <laughs> he needs to be accounting for his whereabouts at all times. <laughs> Put a tracker on I'll him. Join. <laughs> Where were you today? But Linda did not say Russell's name. Oh no. Oh, I, I have a guess. Mm. Who do you guess? Well, can I ask for a hint first? Is it someone's name that's already been given? No, I was just going to let you guess, but you weren't going to guess because we haven't even talked about him. No. Uh, I was like, I really hope it – I was thinking maybe it was Ben. Yeah. No. The name she gave was a man named Donald Bess, and Sheila was shocked. She had no idea who Donald Bess was. Sheila, did you immediately call and apologize to Russell? She did. She did apologize to him later, yes. Oh, good. Okay, yeah. But her her immediate thought was that the DNA got messed up. (laughs) And after all, she'd been told back in 1984 that the semen had been a match for Russell. Right. For 23 years, Russell Buchanan had been the boogeyman in her mind. All that time Mm -hmm. she'd spent thinking that he had been the murderer. She'd made it her life's goal to get him behind bars, and it was all wrong. The detectives that had convinced her it was Russell, they were all wrong. And this is what happens when you base your theories on no evidence whatsoever. Sheila felt Mm -hmm. so guilty. Russell Buchanan was also stunned at the news that Angela's murderer had finally been caught. A sergeant with the Dallas PD called him to let him know that that dark cloud of suspicion that had hung over him was no longer there. And God, I wonder how that phone call. I was just wondering, I'm like, did he just get an email? You know, like. Right. Or not even. Yeah, con- like I'm like, surprised they contacted him at all, to be honest. Like your 23andMe results are. <laughs> right. But like, I didn't know. he and his mother reached out to Sheila to thank her. His mother told her, finally, no one looks at my son like he's a killer. This is forever mm-hmm. gone. So who's this asshole Donald Bess? <laughs> Donnie. Oh, God. Another Don. Who is Donnie? Is he a serial? Killer? He was about 60 years old when he was caught. He was Ooh. a 350 pound, twice convicted rapist who was already serving a life sentence with the possibility of parole at the prison up in Huntsville. Ugh, I mean, I'm glad that they found the killer, but it's like he's already, I don't know, it just feels like half. I know. Yeah. Mm. In January of 1977, he'd kidnapped a woman with the intent to rape her, and she described him to police, and he was picked up in September of 1977. The victim was able to pick him out of a lineup, and he pled guilty and was sentenced to 25 years. 
but he'd already struck again. Just a couple of weeks before getting arrested for the kidnapping, he'd knocked on a woman's door and asked for a glass of water. He stepped inside and locked the door behind him. After she gave him the water, he put his hand over her face and forced her into the bedroom where he raped her. And so very similar to the story that Angela Mm -hmm. was saying to Ben over the phone, like he just walked up to her door and asked to use her bathroom. Yeah. Like a creep. The answer is no, people. Yeah. Well, this was at a time when women were taught to be polite. I was still taught to be polite and (laughs) – yeah. And this is where I'm a little confused because court documents said that this second one also picked him out of a lineup. And he pled guilty and was sentenced to 25 years. So I'm not sure if he just had two 25-year sentences or what. But either way, by 1984, seven years after his arrest, he was out on parole. (sighs) Seven years. He has a 25-year sentence. He's out seven years on parole. Seven years. Yeah. that She would have never been murdered if he had been in prison where he belonged. Linda never said in court records or anywhere else I could find what led her to Donald Best as a suspect, but I would bet that she'd found, because it it made me believe, like, the way that they said it, that he didn't have DNA in a system, like, she didn't run the DNA, and it was like, it's Donald Best, like, she yeah. kind of narrowed in on him as a suspect and tested his DNA his against DNA it. DNA, and it matched. But she never said what led her to Donald Bess as a suspect. So I'm thinking that she found out that he was out on parole for a very similar crime and zeroed in on him that way. Is this now that we're testing his DNA like in the 2000s, is this like a one for one like match? Like this is his DNA. It can only go to him versus how it was in the 80s. Yeah, it was to a degree of one in 2.59 quadrillion. So there's like a 1 in 2.59 quadrillion chance that it would be anyone other than him. It was mm. it was him. Quadrillion. I don't even know how many zeros that is. That just sounds like infinity. That sounds like a made-up number. It sounds like totally made-up. It was a billion trillion kajillion. <laughs> yeah. It's 40% accurate. <laughs> Police theorized that he'd been out at one of the bars that Angela went to that night, spotted her, and followed her home like a real creep. He knocked on her door, asking to use her bathroom and her phone, like Ben said, Angela told him on the phone. Police think that when Angela heard Ben knocking on the door, that she started trying to call out for help, and he started stabbing her with the kitchen knife to silence her. And then he finished killing her while Ben called police from his truck. Mm. Ben left to search the neighborhood for Angela, and they think that that's when he took the opportunity to get out of the apartment. He was a real peach of a guy who wouldn't even talk to the female investigators because all women are bitches, in his words. Who said that? Donald Bess. I hate him. (laughs) Which Sheila thought was hilarious because she was a woman. The lead detective was a woman. The person who ran the autopsy was a woman. Like, these are the people that got him. So I guess women are bitches. (laughs) What up? locked you up. (laughs) What up? (laughs) Linda Crum went to interview Donald Bess, and when he walked into the room, he said, this is probably going to ruin my chances of parole. <laughs> yeah. Wait, for real? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. She said he showed very little remorse and told her that she'd just ruined his day. 
He was leaning back in his chair. He was looking all nonchalant until Linda gave him the date of the incident. And that, he sat straighter and agreed to give a written statement. And this is what he said. This is Donald Best speaking. Through my mouth. (laughs) I got out of prison on parole in March of 1984. During that summer, I went to Dallas to visit some friends. Over the next several months, I visited Dallas three or four times. At the time, I was living and working in Houston. During my visits to Dallas, I met two or three women. Mostly, I would meet them at a bar in the Oaklawn area. One lady was from California and was in Dallas for a foosball tournament. I Oh, <laughs> not the big game. I went with her to a hotel in Irving and we had sex. Another lady I met. I went with her to Granbury, I think, and we spent the weekend there. I remember another girl that I met at a bar, but I don't remember anything about her. I have never hurt anyone. Most of the rest of 1984, I stayed home in Houston and worked. During sex with any girl, I have never been violent. Dude. Okay, except that you're in prison. You're literally in jail right now for being violent during sex. Yeah. But, like, it didn't matter because they matched his DNA to the rape kit to a degree of 1 in 2.59 quadrillion. It was him. Yeah. Sheila was at the trial. She drove 650 miles to get there, but she wasn't going to miss it for the world. That's right, girl. She said when Donald Best walked into the room, she described him as a beast of a human being. And she said it was like the oxygen in the room had all been sucked out. Like a dementor. Like a dementor. She said, look. I'm on, you know, I'm on book five. I just started it, by the way. I know you've read six books since then. Okay. <laughs> but I've, I moved on to Harry Potter book five for those keeping track. Oh, oh, that's exciting. That's a good one. Looking at him, she said she suddenly could not breathe. His defense was that Angela was responsible for what had happened to her. Oh, bitch, please. They completely (laughs) trashed her character and her reputation in all of the misogynistic ways you can think of. They called her a tease. They brought up what she was wearing that night. And considering that she was out at a club, it wasn't a nun's habit. Okay. Also, considering it was the 80s, it was probably really baggy and like. Yeah, it was a black jumpsuit. It was a black jumpsuit. I'm sure she looked gorgeous, but yeah. Uh, it was a silk black jumpsuit with an open back and black pumps. I bet she looked Ugh, amazing. Whatever. It doesn't even matter. No. It doesn't even matter what she's wearing. No, of I'm course not. No. Saying. Yeah. Except that I care because I feel like I want to picture it and I think she looked awesome. <laughs> Ugh, I did order a black jumpsuit for a wedding. Very excited about it. Oh, I can't wait to see the pictures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know this is surprising to absolutely no one, but I just feel like I have to reiterate that a woman was raped and stabbed 18 times. And to defend the man that did it, they brought up her outfit and what a tease she was. Like as if those details would make any difference at all. As if if you tease a man, you deserve to get raped and stabbed 18 times. Well, I'm going to be up all night because I just Google image this awful human. The beast of a human. Yeah. And this wasn't in the 70s. This trial is happening in 2010. This isn't like this was back in the 70s. This was 11 years ago. His defense also tried to make the case of, okay, yes, his DNA was found in the victim's body. But that doesn't mean he killed her. He just raped her. Someone else must have come in afterwards and killed her. But the prosecutor hammered the point home. It was him, no one else that was responsible for her murder. 
Dr. Gillard, who performed the autopsy, she testified that the murder occurred very close to the rape and that she hadn't been able to sit or stand up afterwards. Dr. Sarah Williams, who had tested the body fluids back in 1984, she tested that there was a good number of intact sperm. So seminal fluid breaks down within minutes after intercourse and that within four to six hours after that, it's really rare to find any intact sperm. Also, there was only like 30 minutes of time unaccounted for from when the rape and murder must have been taking place because Angela stopped by Ben's apartment at 1.30. She made that weird call to him at 1.45 just after she'd arrived home. And by the time he got over there around 2, she was either dead or incapacitated. So no, dude, it couldn't have been anyone else. Ugh. Ugh, I'm so creeped out now. I know. But of course, the, the defense said that Ben was not a reliable witness, that he could have been the one to kill her after she'd been raped. But nobody was really listening to him by this point. The jury only needed one hour to find Donald Best guilty, and he was sentenced to death. He's 72 now. He's incarcerated in the hospital unit in Galveston, which is like 30 minutes away from me. And that makes me feel really icky. Yeah. Why did you share that with me? I don't know. I feel icky too. I know. Is he in the hospital unit because he truly looks unwell here? I'm assuming. Yeah. He is 72. Angela is so beautiful. I know. And honestly, look at little Russell. (laughs) I know. Little Russ, Russ. Speaking of Russell, uh, he says that he doesn't hold a grudge against the Dallas PD for all the hell they put him through. He said it wasn't their fault. I know. He said it wasn't their fault and that if it was his daughter, he'd want them to use whatever means necessary to find the truth. But here's the thing. Here's my opinion. I don't think they did that with this case. I don't think they did use whatever means necessary when they decided the murderer was Russell and they stopped investigating anything else, anybody else. I'm surprised that they went the Russell route more than the Ben route. Because of the non-secretor-secretor issue. And uh, yeah, I yeah. forget about that. Because I agree. I think if if Ben had been a non-secretor, he would be in prison. And luckily, there wasn't yeah. enough circumstantial evidence tying Russell to the crime. And also lucky that he didn't have a low IQ or anything else that could have left him vulnerable to saying something that could be construed as a confession. Or mm-hmm. anything else that could have put him in prison for this. I mean, it happens. God. Sheila. Man, I'm so glad I know like two people. <laughs> <laughs> Sheila had no plans of continuing on with her PI life. Angela's case was the only one that mattered to her, and it was now done. Her murderer was in prison. But she Oh, come on, Sheila, you know better, girl. <laughs> she kept getting approached by all these people asking for her help. And she kept thinking that each case would be her last, but they kept coming. So she now has her own firm called Without Warning Private Investigation that only works murder cases that have run cold. And she's now worked on over a hundred cases. She Ooh. has been nominated as one of the top 20 best Nashville private investigators. And Voted the number six most influential woman private investigator. She also has several podcasts that she's done, and I'll link her website in our show notes if anyone wants to check it out. Man, I wonder what her like success rate out of those hundred. I know. Or those like hundreds that I'd she- I'd like to know. And good for her. I can see her too. Like, I'm not going to 
tail after your cheating husband. I solve murders, okay? Right. I only like, do murders and only cold cases. I know because unless like I didn't realize that cold case divisions like weren't a thing. Mm-hmm. And so if in 2006, Dallas, Dallas didn't even have a cold case division, like I wonder yeah. how many other major cities. I mean, Dallas is a major big city. The whole private investigator thing, I guess I don't know enough about it, but it really freaks me out. And not because, like, you could put one on me and they'd be bored as hell. I'm not doing anything. But, like, the fact that I could just assume, like, okay, my partner is cheating on me. I'm going to hire a PI. And even though he's obviously not, I could just hire someone to tail him and totally invade his privacy without him knowing. Like, that seems not okay to me. Like, like how do we prevent this? So say there's someone who's, like, stalking me, like an ex-boyfriend or something. They could just go pay a PI to tail me and give him information? Mm-hmm. Like, that seems really unsafe. Mm-hmm. I am sh- – I, I would think that there would be – because when Sheila was taking the test, she said that she was having her sons, like, just quiz her on all of the laws about being a PI. So I am going to assume that – When you take a case, you kind of do your due diligence. Like, if this is some creeper who's wanting to stalk this person, I'm sure there are glaring red flags that would tell a... You would hope, yeah. Because once you start, like, if they're like, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my husband, when they start investigating that person, they can tell he's not her boyfriend, he's not her girl. Like, they're going to figure that out unless they're just totally incompetent, I would think. And so then it would be the ethics would be to not give that information because it would get back to police that that they had found out where she was or whatever through this PI. Don't get me wrong. Cheaters deserve to be caught. But I think it's crazy that we can catch cheaters this way. Like, that seems weird to me. Yeah. Like, I don't think anyone should be cheating on their spouse. But I also don't think we should be hiring people to find out if someone's cheating. I also think that that if you are going to pay hundreds of dollars – to find out if your spouse is cheating, you might just want to have that. And you already know. Yeah, you already know. You might you just want to have know. that conversation and, and you know, start. <laughs> Love advice from two single. That's my that's my advice right there. From for two you. single 30-year-olds. Yeah. yeah, you and by know. single, I just mean not married. You know, girl. But. And that is the story of the murder of Angela Simota and how her BFF got it solved. This one I didn't expect to... Keep me up. And part of that is my own problem. I shouldn't have Google imaged that guy. He looks like a toad. and um, He does. He looks exactly like a toad. Which you know I'm terrified of. He looks like a sweaty frog. And mm. Mm. <laughs> I'm like very – hell, yeah. Ooh, I didn't expect this one to get me. Yeah. It is a murder. Mogab, thank the peeps. Thanks, peeps. <laughs> Wait, that was good. Hold on. <laughs> Listen up, peeps and creeps. We would love for you to follow us on all of our social media at Creepers Pod. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of the things. Tell a pal, tell your coworkers, tell a family friend, shout it from the rooftops. Email us, follow us on social media. You can DM us or send any feedback to our email, creeperspod at gmail.com. You didn't thank the people. What am I thanking them for? For listening to us oh, talk, talk oh, for an oh, hour. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, thanks for being our biggest fans. We honestly can't blame you. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) If you want to give us a promise ring, 
We're down for that too. So, so humble. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. We so appreciate you guys hanging out with us every week. And also a huge thanks to everyone who's left us a review on Apple Podcasts. They help us out. So if you liked this episode and you have an iPhone, we would love it if you could get on there and give us a five-star rating and a review. Our next goal is 200. We're trying to get to 200. 200. I think we can do it. So if you can help us make that goal, that would be awesome. And be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops when I'll tell MoGab another wild story. Hey, you know what they say. Mm. It's hard to be humble when you're queen of the jungle. Bye, peeps and creeps. (laughs) 